Well, good morning. Good morning, Brianna. I can only hear Brianna this morning. All right. Well, last week we finished up our series on parenting, and so I thought we'd jump into something light this morning. And so we're going to jump into a new series on the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at the seven churches. Um, And to be honest with you, there's some series that I'm like excited to get into, and there's others that I thought I would never teach. And this is probably one of those um, books. Um, It's a book that has uh, so much imagery and so many different things in it, um, and, and and really, to be honest with you, so many things we don't know. We don't know about John's vision, um, and, and, and actually people way, 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 way smarter than me um, have discussed this on end and have ended up polarizing themselves, um, and whole denominations have been formed and or split um, because of their interpretation of this book. And so it's a book that, um, that has a lot of history that goes into it and, and a lot of like... I don't know, some kind of angst when we think about reading it. I was talking to Katie this morning, and she said someone told her along the way, don't read it until you get older. Don't, don't read it until you're like, I don't know, 40 or something. I don't know, that's old, right? Because I'm, I'm older than that, right? Um, that's right. 40 is ancient, because that's what I am, I wish. Um, yes, well, anyway. Uh, but anyway, to say all that... Um, I, and I think just even personally, like, I've studied this book. I've, I've studied all the different views on it. Um, to be honest, when I went through my ordination, I got in trouble because of the way that I um, wouldn't give people answers on this book that they wanted to hear. Um, and um, I can could, I could tell you, I've, I've come to, like, I've learned all those things. I've studied it a ton of times. Um, and kind of to think through the finer points of Jesus' return. Um, and I can tell you what I think. I can tell you why I hold to that. Um, but the reality of it is, a lot of it's still an educated guess. A lot of it's still an educated guess. And I think, to be honest, I think the way that God's broader church has actually viewed this book, um, really as a technical manual to like the end time, um, is probably not the way the book was intended to be read. The book of Revelation is just like every other book in this Bible, intended to be read the same exact way. And we, 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 we see that the, the book, the words of the Bible really given to us so that we would see the glory of Jesus, so that we would see who Jesus is more clearly, how amazing he is, what he's done, how gracious he is, how glorious he is, so that we, his church, would be transformed into his image and we, as we gaze on him more and more and more and that his greatness comes into a full view, we, we would be changed and transformed by that. And this book has the same intention of that. I think this is exactly what 2 Corinthians says. In 2 Corinthians 3.18 it says this. It says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The intent of God revealing himself to us in his word is so that we would see him as more glorious. And really, as we think about true gospel change of a person's character comes from, from steadily gazing at the glory of Jesus. 
And as we gaze at that and as we compare it to our own glory, we repent and, and we, we call out to him and we see our great need of him as, as we look, as we gaze at his glory. And so as we go through this book and as we go through the, the seven churches, really, and they're really kind of maybe the first third of the book, the intent is not to get all the, 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 the pieces straight in your mind of how Jesus would return, but rather that you would see the glory of Jesus. And that would change your heart and the way that you live so that you'd be more in line with him in the everyday. Because the reality is that we live in this world where we live in this already but not yet state. God has changed us. He's given us a new identity. We talk about these are the things that we see that, we, that are our identity now that come from the Trinity. And God has changed us. He's given us identity. But if you're honest, we don't always live that way. We don't always live in line with the true identity that God has changed us. We need to have our eyes, our hearts turned to see Jesus so that we would live that out more truly. I think it's exactly what John reminds us. If you look, the same author, John 1, writes this in John 1, uh, 3, 2. He says this, um, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Basically, he's saying that, that when Jesus comes back, what is, like what's described in the book of Revelation, he'll be seen in his full glory, and our transformation will be complete. And we'll be, we'll be steadily gazing at him for all eternity. We'll be looking and basking in his glory, and reflecting that like a mirror, like we sung about. So the book really is less about um, how he comes back, and what things need to be in place so that he can do that, or what all those things, it's, it's all about um, turning our hearts, our eyes, to be reminded of his great glory. And so that as we look at that and reflect his glory, um, we would live that out now in our, in our identity that he's changed us to be. So as we go through this book, please know that that's, it's really about seeing Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about. It's about seeing Jesus more clearly. It's not just a technical manual for the future of history. So I want to pick up reading in chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can pick up in that. And we're going to read. We're going to start in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Um, and as John opens up the book, um, he points to Jesus. And, and he writes to seven churches in Asia. So just a quick note on these seven churches. Um, described here. These seven churches were actual churches in that time period. They were actual little, literal churches um, that John the Apostle was writing the book of Revelation to. Um, it's just like every other scripture. Um, if you think about the book of Ephesians or the book of Philippians or the book of Corinthians or the book of Romans, it was written to a specific people group. But there's also spiritual significance for other churches and other believers today. These are God's words. They, they never have changed. And, and people have been, this, been experiencing the same things, the same failures in, in, in their life since the beginning of time. And so John is writing to a specific people group to communicate and talk about the needs of those specific churches. But he's also talking and communicating and revealing that the same thing that, that different types of people and different types of individuals and churches that have occurred throughout all of history. Because that's the way God's word works, so that God would, would instruct us and God's truth would keep pointing us back to Jesus. 
There's, there's another view on what these seven churches are, um, and I think it takes it a step further and says that these seven, these seven churches represent seven different uh, periods in history. And I think the problem with that view is that each of these seven churches described here and the issues that, that, this, that are described in those churches could fit the people of God at any time in history. And, and if Jesus' return is imminent, if, that, if he could have and could return at any moment, then like we see all over the New Testament, um, then that kind of seems to debunk the idea that we have to wait for these periods of time to happen before he could come. In some ways, it, it almost like limits God. It says when, when, when he would decide to return, it's like, oh, wait, well, you've got to wait for that other church to do that first. And so I think this view, it's more about people trying to view Scripture scientifically through the scientific method or really even their own understanding of time. I think as we approach Scripture, we have an understanding of time that is very different than the way God understands time. God is not limited by our physical laws that govern the world. We see, we see this, uh, Moses tells us that in Psalm 90, he says, For a thousand years your sight are like a day that's just gone by, or like a... Like a like a watch in the night. So God's time is not on the same time scale as ours. And so we, I think we try to put him in some of our boxes. And I, and I said this earlier, I don't think the, the intent of the book is just to figure out all the finer details of that. I think it's important to think about those and to know those and, and, to, and to study them. Um, but the, really the point is that he's going to return. And that he's going to be seen as glorious. And that we are called to pray for that. And we're called to be looking for that and to live our lives in light of that. And so, I've said a lot of things, but let's just start reading. Um, Revelation 1, um, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the providence of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm going to stop there for a few minutes. And as we think about these things, as you look in your scripture, there, as you hear what I've read, what are the things you see that describe Jesus, that help open your eyes to see him more clearly, to see him more, as more glorious or more gracious. What are some of the things you see John kind of lay out in those verses? I know I usually ask you like personal questions, but I'm going to ask you like a Bible question today. What are some things you, uh, what are things you see about the glory of Jesus in those verses? Okay, he loves us, okay? He's almighty, okay? Good, what else? He's going to come in the clouds, okay? Yeah, good. He's freed us from our sins by his blood, yeah. What else? Okay, everyone is going to see him. 
Okay? Good. What else? He doesn't change. He's unchangeable. Okay? Good. Yeah, what else? He's already the ruler of all the earth. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. He's, we see him. He's on the throne, right? He's everlasting. He's on the throne. Yeah, good. What else? People will mourn. Yeah. There's a reality that when he returns, we're going to be exposed. Yeah. Yeah, good. What else? Okay, yeah, he's made us all priests. Yeah, good. What else? There's a lot in there. We could probably talk about that for a long time. He's the firstborn of the dead, right? His resurrection. We see that he, he was the first one to actually rise from the dead. He's defeated death. That gives us hope. There's a lot of hope in all of these verses. Yeah, even, even that everyone's going to see him and he's going to return. That's a hope for the future. One of, the, one of the major themes that I think as we see this, and, and, and you touched on it over here, that, that Jesus is the ruler of the earth. He's the king. There, there's many other people that claim or think that they have rule. But Jesus is the supreme ruler. If you know from the, if you follow the story from the very beginning, it's, it's evident that, that, um, that he... Um, is the king and he's the supreme ruler. And here again at the end of the Bible, and John is telling us at the very end, at the very end of time as we know it, he's stating it again, Jesus is the supreme ruler. Saying if you missed it from the very beginning, if you missed it from the beginning of time, if you missed it in all the other books in between, let me just remind you that Jesus is the king, he's the ruler of the earth. He says the same thing later on in Revelation 17 and Revelation 19, that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. That Jesus reigns over all. Now, as we think about that, how did Jesus get that distinction? It's by the resurrection, some of the things we talked about, that, that Jesus rose from the dead, that God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. It's, it's that, that, includes, that includes not just, just people that would bow automatically, but it includes all the rulers and all the kings of the earth. That Jesus is alive today, presiding over heaven and over the rulers of this earth. And he was given a new name. And, and as we think about what is the name that Jesus received after the resurrection, it wasn't Jesus. Jesus is the name of the humble servant who went to the cross. But in Acts two thirty six, we see Peter gives us the answer to this. He says this, he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was his lordship, his messiahship, his, him being messianic lord that was bestowed on him and that God exalted him to. It wasn't that he wasn't lord and messiah before his resurrection, but that he had not yet fulfilled the mission of the messiah until he had died for our sins and rose again. And so therefore, um, um, before his death, before his resurrection, his lordship, his kingship um, over the world had not yet been, been brought into full um, actuality yet. The rebel forces, if you want to th- think about it that way, weren't defeated yet. The power of darkness still held the world in its grip. So in order to be acclaimed as Messiah, to be acclaimed as Lord and King of Kings, um, the Son of God had to come. He had to defeat the enemy. He had to lead his people out of bondage and in triumph over sin and Satan and death. And Jesus did that on Good Friday and Easter morning. 
And because of that now, he has been given a new name. He's been given the King of Kings, the Supreme Ruler, the the Messianic Lord. The reality is that, that that's true. Well, everything I've just said is true. But, but the reality is most people don't believe that. Most people don't believe that or even think about it. Even if we do believe that, oftentimes we don't think about it. But we don't, our lives say we don't believe it. I think often many people think they're in control. Or they think someone else is in control who, who holds a role that Jesus allows them to hold. This truth that Jesus is, is the supreme king is, a, is really at the heart of placing our eyes and our gaze on the glory of God. That Jesus is alive and he's reigning over the kings of the earth. And so what that means is that, that he's actually in control of who becomes king. He's in control of who doesn't become king. He's in charge of who becomes our next president and who doesn't become our next president. It's not about us voting, just so you know. But you should vote. God does give you the opportunity to do that. But the reality is like, eh, it really doesn't matter. God's going to set up who he wants to. Not just in our country, but in China, in Afghanistan, in Persia, in every country of the world, God is setting up and taking down rulers. He's the king of all of them. Daniel, Daniel 2 tells us this. He said, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 21 tells us the same thing. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. It's the perfect imagery. If, you, if you've ever seen like water and you kind of put your hand in, the water kind of moves another way. That's God. He just moves the kings and the rulers of the earth however he decides to. This is really the same thing Jesus tells us in Matthew 28. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is telling us, I am now the supreme king controlling over all the other rulers on the earth. Now, as you think about this, it doesn't mean that that every king lives obediently. Or every king lives a Christian life that pleases the Lord. God often ordains and disposes of things that do not please him completely. He takes, the, he takes the, what this really means is that God overrules the sinful acts of evil rulers and makes their sin and their folly a part of his wise plan for history. The, the reign of Christ today over the, the rulers of the earth means that, that he regulates what the, what the kings and the rulers on the earth do, sometimes allowing them to act in their own evil, sometimes holding them back from evil, It means him ordering all the international events really to further his purpose of revealing that he's actually the one that's worth following. So all the goods and the bads of these other rulers all point back to him and revealing that he's actually the one worth following, that he's actually the one that's in control, that he's actually the one that's worth worth the glory that is due him. It's the same thing we see in Genesis 20 where Abraham goes down um, to... Um, I can't even say this. Gear, I don't know if that's, that's exactly right. Basically, the south of Canaan. And, and in order to protect himself, he lies because his wife is too pretty. Right? He, he says, he says you, you should tell everyone that, that you're my sister so that I'll, I'll be protected. And so he tries to protect himself. And the king, Abimelech, comes and takes her into his harem. 
And he, 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 he's going to make her one of his wives. And God comes to him, the king, in the middle of the night in a dream and threatens him with death if he doesn't give Sarah back untouched. And, 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 the, and the king protests and he, he says, I'm innocent. And God says something very important here. I think he says this. He says, I know that you have done this in your integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God is saying, I was the one that didn't allow you to do any of that. What that tells us is, is that God's authority reaches into the realm of preventing rulers who don't even know him from doing acts of sin. That God is in control of all of those things. Now, he doesn't always do that, but God can and does at times restrain evil in the hearts of the rulers of the earth so that, um, that, that people would see him. And that God is ruling over every kingdom there ever was and there ever is and there ever will be. That he's universally supreme, bringing rulers into power so that people would see their need of him as a supreme ruler. And here's the good news. That it doesn't matter how good or how bad a ruler they may be. They're going to fail us. Somebody's calling me over there. Um, it doesn't matter how good or bad they be. They're always going to fail us. And they're always going to point us to the need of someone who can actually rule over all areas of our life. Because Jesus is really the only one who can actually bring about change in your life and in the world. And I want to encourage you as, as you as you listen to, as you read about, as you, as you look online about the news of what's going on in our country and around the world, um, to think about it with the perspective of Jesus actually being the ruler. And, and all those stories actually reveal him as the one that is, that is truly worth following. See, the good news of Jesus having authority over all kingdoms of the earth means that he has the authority to claim whatever citizen he wants. He can claim them from any kingdom and from any nation and from any state on the earth. And even even he can claim the kingdom that rules in your own heart. Jesus is all about orchestrating all the stories of the world, good and bad, so that the hearts of every nation would trust him as Lord. And what this means also is, is that if he's called you into his kingdom, Jesus being the supreme ruler and the supreme king gives us authority. Gives us, gives us the ability and the boldness to call other people everywhere to submit to the true king. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The good news of this city is that every nation is actually here. We don't have to go very far. Jesus says, move people within the nations to your doorsteps. And now you get to participate in calling others to respond to Jesus as the true Lord. What's the response to Jesus being true Lord? What's the response that we call others to? The answer is two things, confession and worship. We call it a confession and we call it a worship. Because the reality is who we worship says with a loud, 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 loud voice who we think is Lord, who we think is King. This is true for everyone that walks on this planet. When you look to something for significance, for acceptance, for approval, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for joy, for security, that very act is an act of worship. 
We are ascribing worth to something. We're saying, that thing over there, that person, whatever it is, will make me significant. That person will make me acceptable. That person will give me security. That person, that thing will save me. We're saying that thing is going to be the one that is supreme. That's the supreme Lord of my life. Anywhere there's brokenness in this world that you see, it's because something other than Jesus or someone other than Jesus is being seen as Lord and King, as the supreme ruler. So one of the things we need to be doing continually is to look at our own lives and the lives of others and saying, where is Jesus not the Lord? Where is Jesus not supreme king and ruler in their hearts? Where, where, where is their life reflecting that? Where is my own life reflecting that? And, and when then we call people in, in the heart of the gospel and in faith to turn from sin, to turn from serving lesser things and call them to actually worship the God that's, that's worthy of worship. To realign our, our actions with our theology of Jesus actually being Lord and King. To confess the areas of our life where we've looked to other things or other people to be the Lord, to be the one who's ruling. And, and I think very often it's, it's easy to see that in your own life and in the life of others, where we would confess and turn back to worshiping Jesus as the true Lord when, we're, when those things are revealed. The good news of this is also that because of the cross, because of our sin um, and putting other things as Lord, in our lives, um, because of the cross, it no longer calls us to hide in sin and shame and sorrow, but rather to rejoice in the hope that we now have in Christ. No longer is my sin a, a cause for sorrow. Jesus' work on the cross now makes me a new creation. He gives me a new identity. I'm part of a new family. I'm joint heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. I have a new father who is the ruler and the reigner of the universe. And so I no longer have to hide in fear and in shame or rejection because I know I've already been accepted by the supreme ruler. So it doesn't matter if you see my mess anymore. In Jesus, I'm accepted. I no longer have to worry about you seeing my sin or you rejecting me. Because, because when you do see my sin, what happens is actually you see my need of Jesus. And when you see my need of Jesus, Jesus... Jesus' worth and Jesus' work on the cross becomes even a greater and a bigger picture of his glory and his graciousness. And so now I'm free because, there's, because even in my own sin, there's hope and there's joy. And that's good news, not for you. I mean, not just for you. It is good news for you, I hope. But also for those around you. It's, it's then when that, that confession becomes this, this beautiful picture of our desperate need of Jesus. It, it becomes this picture where every time we recognize more of our sin and shame that he's covered and we confess that to one another, um, he's seen as more gracious and he's seen as more glorious and it brings more glory to him in all that he does. And I think this is what John is doing when he's writing this book to the seven churches. He's telling them that Jesus is the victor and that when Jesus returns like all the stuff that's described in here, he's going to show the entire world at the same exact time, everyone that's ever lived and everyone that will live up until that time will all finally see that Jesus is the true ruler. That he's the, he's the one that can actually bring about every beauty queen's dream. 
Right? Like every answer, like I want world peace. Like Jesus is the only one that can actually do that. Where every person will be under the submission of Christ. And as, as John reminds the churches, these seven churches of truth, he also calls them to action to live in light of a new reality that's in their life. To live out the purpose of the gospel in the everyday. Because here's the deal. At the end of the age, when the mission and the purpose of the church reaches its conclusion, the name of Jesus will be sounded around the world. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Whether in heaven, angels, or living on the earth, or the dead under the earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the truth that Jesus is actually the Lord. He's actually the supreme ruler, and His glory is God's. And believers and unbelievers will acknowledge that same thing that day. That Jesus has triumphed over every enemy. And the reality is that believers will acknowledge their everlasting joy, and unbelievers will, will acknowledge their everlasting shame outside of relationship with the one who actually has power to save and who's actually supremely ruling in their life. And Jesus desires that, that, that he would be Lord of your life. He desired it so much that he died for that purpose. So that you might be saved. So that you might be brought back into a relationship where you would actually acknowledge him as the supreme Lord. So that you would be brought into his everlasting kingdom with him as Lord. We talked about we're priests now. Jesus is the high priest. He's put, he's put away all the sins for people all at once. And his plan for you, his plan for his church, and his plan for the world are unstoppable. We can talk about all the things of how we think it's going to happen. It really doesn't matter. He's going to do it, and he's going to do it how he wants. And he's calling you and I to put our gaze on him so that we might be molded into his glory and the image of him. And as we continue to go through this series and, and look at, at the, these seven churches and the, the areas that, that they really need the lordship of Jesus to take control... I want to call us to take stock of your own life. To see where in your life, you're just like them. Where we would turn from that, turn from serving a lesser God and worship the true God, which is Jesus. And to confess that Jesus is the one that is actually worth serving. And not just worth serving in the future, but serving in the everyday right now. That Jesus is Lord and King, the supreme ruler, and he's worth worshiping. I want to call you to ascribe worth it to him. To allow him to be Lord over all the areas of your life. And there's power and there's freedom and there's grace in that when he's actually the Lord. He's always the Lord, but I want to call us to recognize that. To remind our, our hearts of that. To remind each other of that as we confess, as we, as we think about our own hearts and as we talk about those things that he's revealed to us and as we see that in others and we call them back to the truth of that as well. I, I, we're going to head to communion and I want to call us just to remind us with verse 5 as we kind of think about and set up this series and set up this book. This is what verse 5 says. He loved us and freed us from our sin by his blood. 
has made us to be a kingdom. He's made us in to be a kingdom and a priest to serve his God and Father. He's, he did that thing so that we could serve him. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, we thank you that um, Jesus came and that he's going to come again. And we thank you that his death and his resurrection now makes it possible for us to be a part of his everlasting kingdom. Lord, we confess that we often don't see the glory of God. We don't often, that we, that we miss seeing Jesus as, as glorious as he is. That there's many areas of my own life that I don't allow him to be Lord of. Lord, I pray as we go through this book and as we look at, at the call to, these, to, the, to the church, to your people, that you would change us, that you would remind us of your goodness, that you would, you would call us to see yourself. But I pray that we would ascribe worth to you, that we would tell others that you are the only supreme Lord to follow. That it doesn't matter what happens in the politics of this world. You're still the king. You're still ruling over all of those things. And you're not just a king that sits up on your throne, but you're a king that's intimate, involved in our lives. That desires to know and to be in relationship with us. Or that's an amazing thought. We, we, don't, we don't understand that because we, we, we've never even seen an earthly king act that way. A king that would come and serve us. And that would be intimate and be involved in our lives. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is in control. Lord, we ask that, that your spirit, that Jesus' spirit and, and would, would embody our hearts and, and would call us back to those truths. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of those things this week. But I pray as we go to the communion table and as we... As we dip the bread in the cup and are reminded that we're actually like Judas. That we're actually running from you. That we betrayed you and that we still betray you. But yet your blood covers us. And your blood has been poured out for us. And your body was broken for us. And not just that, but it rose again so that you would then be declared as the supreme ruler in our lives. So Lord, as we go to the communion table, may we celebrate that. May we be reminded of our need to confess Lord, I pray that we would take time to confess the areas where, we're, where we, we don't see you as Lord and, then, and our need of you so that, so that you would grow bigger in our hearts and in our minds and in our, in our eyes this morning. Lord, we thank you that we get to worship you as your people, that we get to gather in this place and call each other to the truth of these things. Lord, I pray that um, this would just be the start of that for the week. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.